and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Worth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, guys, it's one week till Christmas. I'm really excited. Um, I love Christmas. It can be stressful, especially for um, those of us who are struggling with an eating disorder or really any um, food-related problem. Because just like Thanksgiving, obviously, there's a lot of food, a lot of talk about food, and a lot of talk about, you know, New Year's resolutions coming and potential diets. And that can be really, really challenging. Um, But it's also a really fun time. So this year, I'm planning on enjoying it um, to the fullest of my extent. And, you know, there's going to be challenges like there will be for you know, anyone suffering. So just um, be strong and know that there's other people out there having a hard time too, um, but finds the good in the holidays for sure. So um, anyway, with the new year coming, I'm not talking about resolutions or diets, but I am talking about the Q&A episode, which I've been talking about for months now. Um, it is coming for real in January. So I... Um, want you all to submit questions. I've got quite a few, but the more we get, the better. So definitely um, send those to me. Uh, Again, my email is worthyourwhilenutrition at gmail.com. So send those over. Also, if you're interested in working with me personally, I now have official office time. um, So you can check that out on my website, worthyourwhile.com. And yeah, if you have any other comments, questions, concerns, you know, hit me up uh, either at my email or on Instagram at Worth Your While. So the article of the week was sent by a listener. Um, it's actually a research study. There were some articles in a few uh, media outlets about it as well. Um, but it's, I have the research study here. That's what I'm going to link in the show notes. And I think it's really important for us all to think about because it is um, something I've seen before when I was in school um, my sophomore year of college, 2014, 2015, there was a lot of push towards labeling food, um, you know, basically as an exchange. Like if you ran this much, you could eat this much. And at the time, I didn't really think that was a problem, even though that would have affected me a lot at the time. I would have listened to it um, for sure. But I didn't think, you know, oh, this could be harmful to anyone else. Uh, But later in the year, it actually was incredibly harmful to certain people on the running club. And they contacted the professor who had authorized the study and told them, you know, this needs to be removed from the dining hall. So anyway... Actual uh, researchers, not in an undergrad class, uh, did the same study. Um, they didn't apparently get the same pushback we got, but um, I think they should have. So anyway, the study is the effects of physical activity, calorie equivalent food labeling. So sort of what I described, where you're having you know a food, and then right next to it saying this food is equivalent to this amount of exercise, say like thirty minutes of running to reduce food selection and consumption. So the whole idea of those labels, they're trying to like get people to not eat as much, which is a goal for a lot of people and frustrating because shouldn't the goal just be to eat what our body needs? Shouldn't be just less all the time until, cause you know, then you reach a point where you're not eating anything and certainly not eating enough for your body. 
So I'm just going to read a bit of the abstract to you guys and check it out. Really, it's kind of scary that this is still, you know, the talk. And in this, there's no mention of eating disorders um, or the effect it could have on someone negatively, like a negative effect. It's only positive. So anyway, we know that's not true. Um, This could be really negative. So definitely we want the word to get out that this is problematic and we don't want this to suddenly be the norm like calorie labeling has become the norm. So the abstract says there is limited evidence that nutritional labeling on foods slash drinks is changing eating behaviors, right? Limited, like not a lot. Um, Physical activity, calorie equivalent food labeling aims to provide the public with information about the amount of physical activity required to expend the number of kilocalories or calories to the general public in food and drinks. And they say, as an example, calories in this pizza requires 45 minutes of running to burn, which is just like horrifying. What if you don't run? What if you don't like running? What if you shouldn't be running? What if you just need that pizza to live because you need food to survive, not just to exercise? Um, And then they say this will encourage healthier food choices and reduce disease um, or, or could increase disease like eating disorders. And they say we aim to systematically search for randomized controlled trials and experimental studies of the effects. Um, So they looked at a bunch of different studies. This is sort of like a review. Um, And the results show that 15 studies were included in the paper and that, you know, to some extent it was effective. But again, just like calorie labeling, they didn't show a great impact. And it also you know, didn't address any of the side effects that it might be caused, might be causing. So I suggest that you check this out. Um, It's really concerning to me that this is becoming more the norm, that everyone is constantly looking for ways to reduce what they're eating as opposed to just figuring out what to actually eat in the first place and what would be needed for your body. So that is the article of the day. It's a little dense today, but I think it's an important one. So on the show today, if you guys remember back to September, I had a lot of people from the National Eating Disorder Association on. I went to the walk um, in Fairfield, and that was amazing. And today, um, we actually recorded back back in that time, but I didn't want to overload you guys with three NIDA uh, podcasts in a row. I'm talking to Lauren Smoller. She's the director of programs at NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, she has a ton of information about, you know, what their goals are, what they provide, and uh, the services they have. The, the top of the interview sort of got cut off because her phone connection wasn't so great. So I'm going to fill you in on what she said, and then we're going to jump right into the middle of the interview. So uh, basically, NIDA has a wealth of information. I remember when I first found it, I wished that I had known about NIDA or my parents more specifically had known about NIDA when I was first suffering um, with an eating disorder. There's a lot of information about what eating disorders are on there, all the different types, not just anorexia, not just bulimia. There's binge on there. There's all the OSFED groups, which are, you know, the not specified eating disorders, but a collection of symptoms and signs that show that you have a problem with food. There's a screening tool, which I think is one of the best tools on that website that it's a little quiz, doesn't take very long, maybe like 30 seconds to a minute. And it can tell you if you're at risk for an eating disorder, which is a sign that you should get help or at least, you know, look for help. 
Um, there's a helpline and chat line. So the helpline you can call in. Um, that number is available. I think like extended business hours, maybe like seven to seven or nine to seven, something like that. And the chat line is as well. But I'll include that in the show notes. And that's really helpful for them you know, directing you to places on the website that have more information and also sort of like calming you down, ensuring that, you know, whoever is calling or chatting in gets the resources they need and they're not in in crisis. Um, there's a lot of great resources on the website too. And I actually was a chat line representative for a little while. And I you know, learned about all the resources they had on the site. And some of them are truly amazing, especially for parents or loved ones. Um, There's conversation starters, tips for broaching the topic of um, your concerns about their eating or their body. And for a lot of people, that is like, you don't know where to go. You, You have no clue who to talk to or how even to talk to the person who's suffering. So it's, there are some truly amazing resources. And the last resource I want to highlight is the database of providers. Um, it's not, you know, complete, but it is really helpful for getting an idea of who in your area might be providing eating disorder um, treatment, um, different levels of care and uh different locations throughout the country are there. Um, It's, I think, most easily accessed through the chat line, but I'm pretty sure you can research and search the database yourself on the website. So um, you guys should all check it out, especially if you have any questions about uh, eating disorders. NIDA is a wonderful resource. They are the largest nonprofit dedicated to eating disorders. So um, definitely check them out. And here we go, right into the middle of the interview with Lauren Smoller. Saying that it's such a complex um, illness, and I think it's so misunderstood and, and really difficult to understand if you haven't current, you know, if you haven't actively struggled yourself. Um, and so often, their the caregivers and the family members are really reaching out to us and asking for tools to be able to help their loved ones um, and be able to support their loved ones and allow them to be successful with the help of them you know, as a support option um, while they're navigating the process of recovery. Um, And then for individuals, you know, and families as well, but for individuals, a lot of times, you know, where do I get started? How do I know if I have an eating disorder? What are my options for getting help? Um, And since that can be just so nuanced and complex depending on where they are and what level of care they may need and what other specifications they may need, to have the best set of treatment for themselves. Um, that's certainly something that we help them to navigate. Okay. So you see a lot of questions coming from family members, you're saying? We see families and individuals. So, you know, and I think that um, I mentioned before the families, oftentimes it's depending on where the person is in their process is generally like, how can I help them? You know, how can I, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to not do? Um, and just really reaching out for resources to be able to guide them, to be able to do whatever it is that's the right thing for their loved one. Um, and then we have many individuals also who reach out. Um, you know, the majority of people who are reaching out are individuals, second to um, the family members. Um, and the individuals are often trying to figure out how to navigate this process as well. What's their next step? What do they need to be doing? Do they have an eating disorder? And if they do, what level of care do they need? And you know, how do they narrow that down? Um, and so that's something that the helpline is really a great resource for and helping them to kind of narrow down those options. So when you speak to, you know, a, say a mom or a dad 
calling in or, or chatting in online, what are some of the things you would tell them about how to speak to their child or loved one? Sure. Um, I think we, we try and guide them um, in a way that we sort of guide our whole community in terms of things not to say. We try and really keep the focus away from food as much as possible um, and really, you know, work on um, having conversations that aren't about um, number-specific things or the health content of food, things that can often be really triggering for somebody who's actively struggling with an eating disorder. Um, and just, you know, kind of guiding them to do that um, and offer their support in a really non-judgmental kind of open way. Um, and also recognizing that what support might look like is going to be different from person to person so that we may not be able to tell them exactly what is perfect for each and individual person, but what other things should we be considering that will be helpful for them to be successful, um, depending on the level of care that they're in, how, how old their individual is struggling, right. is, you know, what yeah. else is going on in their life. Um, so is it helping them to make sure that the meals are prepared for them? Is it um, is it just keeping the focus away from that? Is it allowing them the opportunity to be in situations that aren't um, completely about food? Is it, you know, things like that. So um, it's really, it is going to really depend on that individual person and what's going on in their life. But those are some things to start thinking about um, as they're looking towards their individual and working with the treatment team to figure out what's going to be helpful and what what can be most successful. Right. I'm sort of asking because I think, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, like parents and friends don't even know how to like start that conversation without the person getting, you know, upset, right? So many times people with eating disorders are really on edge or would deny they have a problem. Um, So like, what are some tips you could give to a a parent or friend about like, how do you start that conversation or get someone help who maybe doesn't want to believe that they need help? Yeah, I think um, that's a great point. And it's something that we do often get questions about. And I think the key is really to come from a place of um, no judgment and, and not be confrontational and really express from a place of concern what you've observed and want them to know that you're there to be able to help them get help from a professional who specializes in eating disorders. Um, and if, you know, if it's a, if you're a parent of a child, maybe guiding them through that process and allowing them the opportunity to be able to have access to those specialized um, treatment professionals. If it's a friend or another loved one, just kind of allowing them the space to be able to say, like, I'm here for you and I'm here to support you. Um, and, you know, I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z that I've observed and would love, you know, for you to be able to get support. Right. Okay. So sort of pointing out, um, you know, concerns that they have about, about the person or, or things that they might worry about for them to try and get them to be interested in care. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a delicate balance between being really careful about just sharing concerns and things right. that you've observed, um, but coming from a place of really no judgment and allowing them right. the opportunity to kind of be where they are and where they're ready, um, but just starting that conversation and allowing them the opportunity to know that you, you know, observed some concerns and that you um, are there to be able to help them get help. Right, because maybe if they're not ready at that moment, when they are, they'll know that you wanted to help them. Correct, yeah. Okay. And I know Nita does a lot. I actually was a chat line volunteer for a little while. Um, and Oh, wonderful. Yeah, like a, a year ago. And um, 
Oh, cool. I remember I got tons of questions about, like, how do I find a provider in my area, right? Or, like, how do I find someone who will take my insurance or, or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a lot of tools for helping people do that, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. they do. We have a lot of um, tools. Our treatment provider listing is probably the most common one. Um, that we are actually currently in, um, we have now a mapping um, tool to be able to help people find treatment options all over the country and kind of find what's closest to them. Um, that's a really good first step to see what options are available in your area, if that's, if that's where you're looking. Um, but also, I think the helpline is a great resource to be able to navigate if you need to go somewhere else for treatment, if you need to go to residential treatment in particular, um, or an inpatient treatment program that maybe doesn't need to be close as close to your house but needs to have something that's really specific to what you're dealing with. Um, I think that's a really great opportunity to make use of our helpline to be able to guide you through your and what those options are. So with individuals calling in or, or texting in, I think... I often saw and I heard from a couple individuals I've spoken to recently that there can be a lot of barriers to to getting care. Um, What are some of the most common barriers that you see with people asking for help? Yeah, I think some of it um, goes back to some of the stereotypes. So um, I think there's a stereotype, unfortunately, that eating disorders really affects um, thin white young women and we know that that's not true we know eating disorders really don't discriminate they can affect anyone um, and so if you don't look like what the stereotype of the eating disorder is that's an automatic initial barrier to being able to access treatment because you yourself may not recognize that this is a problem that is worthy of treatment um, right. as well as yeah. treatment providers I think it's really um, still tough for the outside world to recognize eating disorders when it, it doesn't look like what they think it does. Yeah, um, yeah. And as I mentioned, you know, eating disorders really can affect anyone of any size, of any background, any gender. Um, and that can be really tough, um, even just culturally for people who, um, who, again, don't look like they have, like, the stereotype of an eating disorder. And so, therefore... Um, their own support system may not have been exposed to this as an option. Um, I think the idea of treatment can be really hard for people in general. Um, admitting that you need help or allowing other people to be able to admit that you need treatment from people who really can specialize and be able to help you through this process um, can be a huge barrier. And that's sometimes part of the dynamic of the eating disorder itself is resistance to treatment. So that's right. incredibly Definitely. challenging to <laughs> yeah. navigate. Yeah. And I um, think you so were, an, okay. yeah. Well, I think you were sort of mentioning like we kind of all have the stereotype of like anorexia is an eating disorder and nothing mm-hmm. else really falls right. into that category. But you know, far more individuals have binge eating or um, you know, OSFED, like another not diagnosed uh, specific eating disorder. Um, so right, binge that- eating disorder is really the most common, and I think that it's, it's not as well known, and people don't always recognize that it is a valid eating disorder, absolutely deserving of treatment, and just as serious as other eating disorders. Right, yeah, it's not like they're choosing that um, either, right? So they they could still right. need just care. like somebody isn't choosing to restrict, somebody's certainly not going to be choosing to be engaging in the behaviors that are causing the diagnosis of binge eating disorder. Great, okay. And... And a lot of that you were saying kind of goes back to our stereotypes that we have in our head or like the way our culture has taught us to think about eating disorders or body shapes in in general. 
And mm-hmm. I, I think I see that Nita does a lot of work trying to change the culture around eating disorders. Um, what are sort of the biggest, you know, things you're trying to tackle out there right now uh, with your messaging or blogging or um, those sorts of activities? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think what we've just definitely tried to do in terms of some of our strategic priorities in recent years is make people more aware of those stereotypes and how eating disorders really do not discriminate. And so that affects people who look different ways and also kind of what is the larger um, contributing factors to eating disorders and recognizing that um, diet culture and um, fat phobia certainly are contributing factors to the pervasiveness of eating disorders and trying to combat those um, issues and, and make people aware of them to be able to reduce um, all the additional stigmatizing elements that contribute to eating disorders and people not being able to access care. Right. So when you say um, fat phobia and diet culture, how do you explain to people what those are and how do, how do you get someone to change how they feel about it? It's a really hard question. Yeah, it's really tough. It's a, it's, these are really new ideas for a lot of people. Yeah, um, yeah. The idea that diet culture is something that is not an accurate measurement of health, um, that you know being thin does not equal health, is um, a really challenging concept for our world, especially because these messages are certainly reinforced um, everywhere, really. Um, yeah. There's messaging everywhere that's contributing to this um, and kind of recognizing that. And that's actually a lot of what our prevention programs um, speak about as well and is educating um, individuals about these messages and how, how to kind of get, get past that and recognize them for what they are and um, be able to really listen to your own body and your own body's messages um, about what is what is going to be healthy for you and what is going to be the right choices for you um, and and again, and kind of just overall changing um, the societal messages around that as well. And so changing them from what to what would you hope to see? Yeah, I think we're looking for really acceptance of, of individuals of all sizes and um, all backgrounds and recognizing that there's not one look that is the right look. Um, People come in all shapes and sizes, and they should come in all different shapes and sizes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is not, um, that's not a problem, and it, it's something that, you know, I think um, really contributes to a lot of dissatisfaction um, in all sorts of ways, um, and we are trying to really promote body acceptance. Awesome. Yeah, so, so what are some of the things that you know, individuals um, out and about in the world can uh, try to do to reduce the harm um, or reduce, you know, problems caused by those simple things we say that sort of perpetuate diet culture or these stigmas? Yeah, um, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think it's, you know, we know that, um, that these types of influences that um, bullying, and which is often connected to weight shame, um, really can contribute to eating disorders. Um, and that diet culture really affects people really early on. We know that um, we have over 28.8% of teenage boys are trying to lose weight. 
Wow. Um, and yeah. that's something that I think is against the stigma. You know, one half of teenage girls right. um, and one third of teenage boys are already using unhealthy weight control behaviors. Right. So these yeah. are things that are affecting people at such a young age already. And, and such large numbers, and it's really um, something that we are we've identified this as a strong concern. Um, so what we've been t- trying to do, especially with some of our prevention programs, specifically geared towards high school and college age students, um, is really teach them about media literacy and teach them about the harmful effects of diet culture um, and how to um, do a better job of listening to your body and, and not accepting those. Um, pressures to be able to conform to a certain, you know, ideal look um, that is really not an accurate measurement of what is um, healthy or right for anyone's body. Right. I guess I was thinking more like, so when I um, was in school, we had a week that was called like, like fat talk free week or something like that. And it was trying to get people to stop you know, saying something like, I feel so fat as a, like, when you feel bad or, like, sick. Because um, often people will say that after they eat, if they just feel, I don't know, like, a little bit nauseous or something. Um, and so we had mm-hmm. this whole week that was sort of promoting, like, don't don't use fat as a, as a synonym for, like, bad. Um, and mm-hmm. I was wondering if there's any, like, sort of small changes like that um, that could be done to help, you know, change what people are hearing, especially kids, like, all around them? Yeah, I think that's a great example. Um, in general, yeah, I think that, that just being really critical of, like, how you're speaking and how you're promoting these messages, which can often be extremely unintentional. I mean, these are really immersive to our general culture. Yeah. So we're yeah. not commenting on somebody's change in weight or shape in any direction, whether it's positive or negative. Right. There's no reason to, you know, compliment weight loss, which is often something that people do or, you know, a certain effort to focus on people's abilities in terms of, like, intellect or, or accomplishments rather than things that, you know, how they look and, and things like that. Um, to really do a small amount that really, a really drastic amount to be able to change people's perspectives and take the focus away from what appearance is and, um, the amount of value that's currently attributed to it when there's certainly way more, way more important things uh, that are about people's personalities and characteristics that um, could be focused on as well. Right. And it's, it's funny because, you know, like Disney movies and whatever, like always say, you know, it matters what's on the inside, not the outside. But at the same time, there's everything around us is kind of perpetuating the other um, belief, I suppose. Right. Yeah, I think it's really challenging to kind of tease this out. And once you start thinking about it, it really does become apparent. It's kind of everywhere. And it's, yeah, so it's kind of overwhelming. We're all a little guilty of perpetuating these ideals because they are just so immersed in our society. And so being able to take a step back and think critically about what you can do to be able to, to really combat those messages, even just just day to day, like I said, this all comments are changing your focus um, when interacting with friends and not body shaming. I think there's also, you know, something that we hear about a lot is like a collective body shaming that happens where um, people are, you know, saying, you know, I don't look good like this and I don't look good like that. Um, It's almost like a a unifying activity and it's just, it's so sad because we should really be celebrating our accomplishments rather than 
um, putting each other down. And I think that's another really key option that people just don't think about that is um, unintentionally perpetuating the fact that there's an ideal. Right. Yeah. Like the idea that people can't brag about themselves. They always have to sort of say a negative comment instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. A lot of like tough things going on, but do you see any like positive trends going on right now that are helping to change, um, you know, the rate that people are having problems with food or body image? Yeah, something that I think that we, I cite a lot is um, social media is so harmful, right? We have all these with um, perpetuating this appearance ideal, right. um, but it can also be so positive. And something that I think we've really observed also is the, um, the opportunity for a community of um, people who are accepting of bodies of all different shapes and sizes, the uh, health at every size movement and things like that have really um, found support um, and found a, a more spoken community of people who are tired of this this ideal and um, yeah. perpetuating it and really interested in um, spreading the word and setting an example of um, accepting different sizes and um, representing different sizes and allowing them to um, those stories to be elevated. Right. Yeah, definitely. I see like, if you find the right people to follow, it can be a big positive um, on social media. Yeah, we could we talk a lot about curating your own kind of social media feed. Um, and to be able to have a thing more representative of what a real kind of experience looks like. So having um, people who are all different states and sizes and abilities and backgrounds can really allow um, a person to be able to be more accepting and be less surrounded by these messages. Right. Okay. Totally makes sense. So just two more questions. Uh, One is, you know, a a real question. One is kind of for fun. Um, The last question is, so Nita, going forward into this year, are there any specific goals or challenges that um, the organization is trying to tackle? Yeah, I think um, in line with kind of how we've been discussing this whole time, one of our main strategic goals is really doing um, a great, you know, a better job of reaching individuals and families and being able to have them... um, have new experiences and new stories that have not previously had the opportunity to be shared that are real and valid um, being elevated as well. Um, and that's something that we're doing in programming in a lot of different ways. Um, I think we're having people, you know, speak at our walks. We're having our um, regional conferences. We have one that's taking place October 19th okay. in Seattle, Washington. Um, I have the opportunity for individuals and families you have a place to connect in person and hear from individuals and professionals who can really represent um, more than just that stereotype and speak to how eating disorders can affect people of all different kinds of backgrounds and um, what does that look like and how how to get support. Um, So I think that's something that's been a major priority for us um, and something that we're working hard to do. Definitely. Do you have any examples of of those people who will be coming to events um, soon? Um, I do. I think we are not ready to make it 100% public okay. yet, but <laughs> stay tuned for our website. If you go to nationaleatingdisorders.org forward slash Nita Khan, 
um, then you can actually see, and we are, registration is currently open. I think we have sold out of all of our early registration. Oh, awesome. Um, there are still tickets available for general registration for anyone who wants to um, register and come, and um, we will be posting the uh, presentation. But I can tell you a little bit about what the content will be like. Sure, um, yeah. So one of them that we are talking about is eating disorders in 2019, and that's really talking about how eating disorders are um, so complex and so individualized and how it's changed over time and what do we understand about eating disorders and what recovery looks like now and how eating disorders affect different people. Um, and we were certainly having a, a help at every size um, and weight stigma presentation as well to be able to help our audience members um, better understand what health at every size really looks like. Yeah, how yeah. And how do those interact and how does that affect everyone? Because everyone really is affected by weight stigma and um, what does that mean for people of all sizes and, and how can we make a difference? Um, so those are two I think that I can safely really talk cool. about now. Yeah. And we're finalizing some of the other things and we will always have... Um, uh, presentation of people who can also speak individually about their stories um, and be able to kind of represent different perspectives of people who have struggled with eating disorder and body um, dissatisfaction issues. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. Um, my last fun question that I like to ask every guest is just what is your favorite food? Because I think we talk so much about the problems food can cause. I like to end with a little bit of positivity about food. Ooh, I like that. What is my favorite food? It's so much changes over time. Yeah, yes, um, yeah. I think today it's probably spaghetti and meatballs. Oh, that's awesome. Any any particular type of meatballs or spaghetti? Mm, yeah, you know, the really rich, um, heavy sauce meatballs, the really savory um, tomato sauce is, is what I'm feeling today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, thank you, Carl, as well, for helping set this up. Thank you all, all for right. your time. Have a great uh, week. Take care. All right. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for listening to the whole episode. If you made it this far, please go down and rate and review um, this podcast. That is the best way for people to find me and for others to learn about the show and learn about what life with an eating disorder is like. So um, please do that. Rate or review on whatever platform you listen to. But I think the review is only on Apple Podcasts. You can't do that on Spotify or whatever other um, listening app you're using. So Thank you for doing that and have a wonderful week.